Hey everybody and welcome back to Prep Hour. Today we're going to be talking about co-teaching classrooms, aggregate expenditure limit here in Arizona, and then we've got kind of a bonus surprise question I'm going to ask Mark and Marcus. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm Marcus. And I'm Mark. And you're listening to Prep Hour. So how are you guys doing? I'm doing okay. I feel like I'm a little under the weather, but I think it's just um, allergies. Yeah. Well, and you just, you literally just got done teaching. Or COVID. It could be. Well, I'm just, just cough my direction. No, actually, I tested. I'm negative. Mark, how you doing? I'm good. I'm actually just looking over our topics for today and uh, doing my little last bit of uh, homework here. Yeah. So yeah, I'm good. I'm just getting ready to roll here. So well, it's okay. We're just going to talk. Yeah. Take um, some pictures. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I will mention something. So I was I was just reading this morning, uh, fourth through eighth grade. They're talking about the virtual learning over COVID the last several years. How many states? Kids fell behind in math and reading. That was on the New York Times of the Daily podcast. I was listening that's, to that this morning. Okay, so maybe okay, that's where it's associated. So what? So you should know the answer. Oh, what is the question? How many states are fell behind? Oh, Do I don't know how many states. I wanted to look at it and deaggregate, like deaggregate it, disaggregate okay. it. I don't know. Yeah. What the word. I should I know that know. as an economics right. teacher. Because <laughs> um, I wanted to see who's bringing down the average. I wanted to look at it. Our are schools failing the same? Meaning, are are we seeing the same discrepancy in math and reading rates in poorly funded schools and schools that are well funded? Or is this something? Because I'm taking it all back to last week's topic. Last week's money. topic yeah. is money. Yeah. Is, is yeah. because I don't think it's any different than before COVID. Well, and to answer your question, that's exactly what it is. It was okay. So, forty-nine of the fifty states saw some decline, and the decline typically. So, let's say, for example, schools that were well-funded. I'm not sure what that means, but well-funded, those kids on average lost roughly a point uh, in math and science or math and reading, whereas inner-city or poor schools lost up to seven points. And frankly, I thought it was going to be more. Wow. Yeah, and so it, it in, in what the conclusion of this whole thing was, and it's not surprising, the schools who had the resources were able to survive. And it really, obviously we all know this, but what it really personified, or not, I shouldn't say personified, really exploited was schools who had resources, had laptops, were able to weather the storm where those schools could not, the poor schools could not. And obviously the disparity within those schools or within those, those schools grew at a much more, much greater rate. And now the, and, and I think this, the federal government threw, I can't remember the amount, but it was an, it was like $2,300, $2,300 per student to help with get, getting those students or back up to speed. And for example, my wife, they offered, they were offering tutoring sessions. They probably did maybe the same thing at your school. Mm -hmm. Um, and what they, and teachers don't want to do it. You know, it's just, it's not, they don't have the time. They're yeah. tired. And, 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 and they were saying that that tutoring can make up a 19 week difference within just 
I think it was for the school. I don't know if it was for the school year or the semester. And that's something that they're doing now, or you mean they did that during the? They've been doing. Home? It's been ongoing, and and this is the best part. Only twenty percent of that money has to be used for for students. So the other eighty percent, who knows, is going. Who knows? I don't where. know. It all has little catches to it. Yeah, you know, because a lot of people are like, well, why don't you use the federal COVID aid? And it's like, well, we can't use the federal COVID aid for maintenance for M and O budgets. We can right. only use it for some type of extra thing that will help students. Right. And it runs out, I think next year, 23, I believe. That's interesting. You say that. I don't know if this has anything to do with that, that pot of money, but our district just did a, um, what they called fall intercession. I think they're going to do one over spring break too, but over fall break, basically students who were failing classes could come in and get extra help. And, um, and I think Ducey signed something about the, the summer school, the extra summer school Mm. plan that they're having here in Mm. Arizona. So, I mean, that's good. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, I liked how they said the reading rates were much higher, or the reading losses were lower than the than the math losses because parents can correcting reading and writing, but when it comes to the math, a lot of parents are kind of hmm. I don't understand that. Interesting kind of thing. Which it was the podcast because they the the analogy the the, the woman you said yeah you can tell a child a bedtime story but you can't tell them a reading problem yeah. Story. yeah 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 that huh. was it which so. i got out of that was okay we need to tell people to start doing more math with their right. kids right. i don't right. know yeah. feed them feed them feed them peas and if they can correctly <laughs> remove one eighth of the peas they don't have to eat them hey there you go <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> Try doing that with a pea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. You got 50 peas on your plate. I'll tell you what. If you can correctly guess one eighth of 50, uh, you don't have to eat the one eighth. Get rid of some of them. <laughs> all right. That's why I teach soul study. So let's move on. <laughs> well, everybody, Eating all my damn peas. Everybody knows the answer is 87. 87 <laughs> peas. What else we got? Well, that was not on our agenda. But who cares? That was a good one. Yeah, it's the New York Times Daily Podcast. I think it's about 16 minutes. So if you want to turn off our podcast because you're about ready to fall asleep, you can uh, go (laughs) download that one (laughs) and listen to it. It's pretty good if you got a quick drive into work. A thing I was reading today out of Education Week, which I found interesting because it was... I wanted to focus on something a little bit more Arizona-based, so I, but I opened up this article and I was reading it, and all of their data, not that all of the data from co-teaching comes from this school, but it was Westwood out of Mesa. And I was like, oh, hey, cool. This is actually Arizona-based. So I kind of wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about, this was a very pro-team teaching. So mm-hmm. they had about, it was in a math classroom, they had about 135 students in the room with four teachers. So as a teacher, what do you think about that program? Because I've co-taught before. I'll share my thoughts on that in a second, but I wanted to know what you guys thought about that. So I couldn't, I'm out of my free articles on uh, Ed Weekly, but um, I read the first part of it. And I I actually do want to hear your experience co-teaching because I have co-teaching experience too, but it's in a different uh, model. Okay. Um, I think, as far as I know. Yeah. So my co-teaching was an American history English class. So I got to I paired up with a with an English teacher, and she and I tried our best. Our goal when we did it was we want to teach history through English. Which, if you take college level history classes, like we all have, 
a lot of the times they'll assign you, most of my history classes, we had fiction and nonfiction books that we would read. Mm. So I read all quite along the Western Front in my history class. You know, you read the red badge of courage in a history class. So um, my German history classes, we read a lot of fiction Mm. because even though it was fiction, it was nonfiction. (laughs) But but, um, there's a lot of Russian authors that speak about their time in the gulags and things like that through fiction. So we thought, oh, that would be really cool. The problem we had was the curriculum through the district didn't allow us to merge everything. So there were times when we were doing like the Revolutionary War, well, with the English department, they were doing early documents of America. So that worked. We could read the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. We could pull things out. So merge. But then they would go do existentialism and we're doing something completely different. It's just like, how do we merge what you're doing? Or how do we merge grammar with, I mean, we could have, we could have been like, Hey, you're going to write a paper, a historian, we can do it that way. It was a ton of work. Yeah. And it just didn't map, map up. If we could have, if they had said, we want you to teach a block class, co-teach it with 70 students in it. You guys have free reign. Here's the, you know, here are all the, what's the word I'm thinking about? Standards. Standards. Here are all the standards that you got to cover, create a class. That would have been cool. But it was like, you have to do this. You have to co-teach it. We want it to merge, but here are a bunch of, this is the structure we need. And it's like, well, we can't, Mm. I can't make that work. So um, I didn't like it. I felt the class was very, she taught, then I taught, then she taught, then I taught. And it was basically two classes with two teachers in it, but a lot of the time I was just sitting there twiddling my thumbs or she was because we just didn't have anything to do together. Or if I did help, it would be like to hand stuff out or to walk around during group work and help as much as I could. But that was basically it. I, I, I didn't see it as really a team effort. Yeah. See, and the, the, I've co-taught two different years. I co-taught like five years ago and then I just co-taught last year. But my model was I was the content teacher for history and then the other teacher in the room was a special education teacher. And so we had a, a higher number of um, special education students um, in our classroom, um, students on IEPs. And and, um, and so the idea is to, it's that inclusion model of um, getting students out of resource classrooms and into on-level gen ed classrooms. So it's a little bit different than that. So we, we obviously it's one content. So we were on the same page as far as that goes. Um, I think like my biggest takeaway from that was you really got to be on the same page as far as teaching philosophies and, you know, making sure that, like you said, that, that planning piece, having to, you know, find the time to sit down and plan together and make sure you both know exactly what your role is going to be. I think that's critical. Mm -hmm. And it really is more than just like you get along. You can get along with people who you work with, but like you really got to be lockstep um, otherwise it, it just doesn't work. Yeah. And I was thinking about it. I was like, there were people, there are people that I can think of when I taught that I would want on my team, mm. but I'm like, do, would they want me on their team and yeah. would it work? Or what if somebody's slacking? Yeah. What if somebody's kind of taking control over the whole thing? And you're like, Oh yeah, I don't. One of the things I love about teaching is the autonomy. Mm-hmm. I like being able to create my stuff. Not that I like to share. I like to pick other things from other people, but then I like to make it my own. I don't know if I would like it. I, I, when I co-taught, it was great. The The teacher I co-taught with was fantastic. She was wonderful. She was just a 
good person and she was a great teacher, but I don't know if I would want to do that long run. I don't know if I definitely want to do it with more teachers. And we did it when I was in Iowa in middle school. That's how our math classes all were. We had a bunch of teachers in one room. It was a big, huge room. And then it was, it was been a while, but I remember that's, it was a, a team teaching effort. Yeah, I, my experience was, I mean, I, a little bit of both. I mean, you got, I'm not going to add much more than what you guys both say because you, you guys touched on both points. But for me, the three years that I did it, I, I Pete, the frustra- frustration you felt is what I felt. And then I was like, okay, can I, um, can I fight this or not? And we modified the final exams to, to, you know, to make it uh, much more complementary between language arts. And, and, th- and this was junior American history and junior lit. Like you said, they line up fairly well at points and throughout the year. And then once I stopped fighting it, I was like, okay, here's what we'll, here's where we'll, you know, this is where we'll touch down. And then the other points were I'm way ahead and they catch up, you know, mm-hmm. as far as timeline and all that stuff, we'll, we'll work with that. But I, I struggled with it constantly, but I remember a couple of kids that made me feel good about it because like you said, you're almost teaching, you teach first hour, I'll teach second hour. And a couple of kids would throughout the years, I'd always ask, do you really think this is worth it? And, and they'd say it the same, they'd say the same thing in a different way. Yeah. Because you'll say something, or at this time it was Miss Walker, she'll say something and it kind of ties together, you know, and that made me feel good about it once for the most part, but it wasn't a true collaborative effort, but I think no. it's not. And, but I think what the kids get out is they get the experience of it. Um, if you have two people, you know, fairly dynamic teachers that are passionate about their contents, I think that's the, that's, to me, that's good enough, I guess. Yeah. But truly, you'd like to have it collaborative. But going back to yours, Marcus, I did a PD years ago in, in another district, and that was just it. They're working with a special ed teacher and having that partnership within that classroom. And that means you, the general ed teacher, has to relinquish control. Something like you would have a problem doing it, as long as the person's competent. Right. If the person's not competent, then there's a lack of trust, everything else. There's so many dynamics that go into collaborative teaching or co-teaching that the administration needs to look at very, very carefully. They need to match up personalities, but oftentimes I think they think, oh, we just need co-teachers. Let's throw, let's throw Mr. Coach Redemus in there and Miss Sally in there. Well, well they'll, and they'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what they yeah. did. One of the things that the article talked about was, is that they were doing this for financial reasons. So one, I don't think it's something that an entire school would want to do. Cause I don't think not only are you not going to get all teachers to buy in, because there are some teachers like me, or even worse than me, who are like, I don't want to work with anybody else. Right, I, they won't even PLC or yeah. Any, yeah. And then you're also going to have students that don't like that. They don't like being in a room yeah. with 130 other students. They like being in small groups. They like to be quiet. They like to take their notes. I think it's kind of like we have a block or had a block uh, or have a block program at Highland High School. Is if you want to take it, take it. We got teachers there that like to do it. Great. I don't think it's, I think it's a bandaid for some financial stuff. One of the things that one of the teachers in that article mentioned right at the end, he came back, he le- had left teaching. He got hired, hated teaching, left during the pandemic because he was like, screw this, went and did some odd jobs. And then he got hired back, but he only got hired at schools that had that program. And so he's at Westwood now, team teaching. But he mentioned it that he went back to his experience as a first year teacher and he basically said no first year teacher should be handed the keys to the classroom and said, it's all yours now. Good luck. And he's like, it just, he was basically saying all new teachers should be in a team or co teaching, which got me thinking, 
one, when I did my student teaching, it was a financial burden on my family mm-hmm. to quit my job and have to go teach. Then when I taught, and this is how I did my student teaching, because this is how I learned student teaching. And then when I had a student teacher, it's what I did with my student. And now I'm looking back going, it was horrible. I should never have done what I did. I was basically, my mentoring teacher watched me for two weeks mm-hmm. and basically said, yeah, you're good to go and left. and then told me, well, I'm teaching you what it's going to be like because you won't have me. And I went, okay, that makes sense. And then I got a student teacher. I did the same thing because I knew he was going to get thrown to the wolves. So it's kind of like the, you know, I look back at my uncle did it to me, threw me in water and taught me how to swim that way, which is a horrible way to teach somebody how to swim. But here I am years later going through the same thing. And we should not be doing that to our, we should, you should go through a teaching program get hired, be on a one-year probationary period, which you are anyway when you get hired. You're on for three years. But work with another teacher, not get thrown to the wolves. Because it really, even though that's how I did it and she did it, it's not how it should be done. And really have a veteran teacher that can be with you in the classroom, helping you in the classroom, helping you grade, doing all that stuff. I mean, kind of sitting back, letting you do it. But it got to be nicer to our first year, second year teachers because they're that's hor- that was horrible. Plus, they should be getting paid. I think the whole student teaching thing is is ridiculous. So, like, hey, give up your job. It's great if you're a 23 year old college student and mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I'm still on student loans, living in the subsidized housing down on campus. Fine. Somebody like me, I was 29 years old and went in. I was like, I have to quit my job and for six months. And then try to find another job, which is going to be difficult because I did it. Uh, I was lucky. I did it spring semester. Mm-hmm. But if it had been fall semester, I was like, that's going to really limit my access to. I'm going to have to go back to my old job, hopefully, and then work. And then do I stay or do I go, you know what? I'm at my old job now. I'm I'm good. I don't want to do this. I mean, that could have happened, but so. Oh, do you have? No, I was just going to add, like you're talking about student teachers. And the only thing I'd add to that is the best, when I start taking on student teachers, I think the best piece of advice that was real salient and, and hit home, you have an extra student in your class, treat them like one. And that, I thought that was really good because you don't walk away from students in your classroom. You have to mentor them. And I think it's better now uh, because, you know, some school districts and your Marcus, you're a great example of it, that we are actually setting up mentorship programs within schools to work with new teachers. They're meeting with, you know, they're meeting with um, veteran teachers and going through the process. But the process, the problem is they don't provide the time to meet with these new teachers. It's not in school. It's after school or before school when they're gassed or they got to get their lesson plans in order. And really what it should be is like, all right, there's a sub for you today. You're going to work with the new teachers. You're going to go observe and you're going to do it during the school day. And that's the way it should be. They provide that time so student teachers don't feel like they're, they're, they're getting overrun or they have to go to district hours to keep their certification outside their classroom. And they shouldn't be, in my opinion, they shouldn't be responsible for any of those things in their first couple, three years. Well, and I, I think too, like, like if we want to get outside the box here, if we had all the money in the world, right. And schools were totally funded, like, you know, the military or a corporation or whatever else we honestly, let's have teachers, new teachers, first year to the profession. You're going to teach half a day. You're going to co-teach half a day with a veteran. Yeah. The other half of the day, you're going to work with the instructional coach or whoever's on your campus in charge of new teachers. And you're going to go through training with them. You're going to get support from them. You're going to get time to grade, um, have conversations with your peers, like basically be a cohort. Mm-hmm. 
obviously we don't have the financial means to do that at this point in time, no, we don't. but let's, uh, you know, if, if that's, we really want to get serious about like retaining new teachers, right? Let's, let's be robust. Well, and, and, and I think of, think of the, think of how the mentorship is with a new doctor. Mm. I mean, they're not turning them loose. No, they're, they're making rounds. Thank God. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's, and I, 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 off, I, I just marvel how we allow these young people. It doesn't matter. Inexperienced people. Okay. Go, go deal with 25 wolves in a classroom. Good luck. We'll mm-hmm. see you in the spring. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do to them. And it's, it's, it's yeah. awful. It's really bad. And I think, it, you know, how we treat them, how the medical industry, the, the, just how robust the mentorship is there. It's incredible. It is with every profession. It is. It really is. It, it, it really is. With profession. Yeah, you know, yeah lawyers, any profession. Right? I mean, right. Any, you know, yeah, it is. Uh, financial people, they, yeah. they don't, that stuff's important. Hey, counting's on your own. You can figure it yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> but that stuff is important. Sure. Pe- people's money is yeah. important. To them. People's legal issues yep. are very important to them. People's yep. health is very important to them. Right. So they don't, you one, you join a professional organization that looks out for you and right. protects you, which we don't. If you're a lawyer and you join it, great. You're not called a communist. If you're a doctor and you join your professional association, great. We want you to be in that because you're learning stuff from that organization. You're not a communist. You're a teacher. Don't join, don't join a professional organization because that's socialism. Because <laughs> those are unions, and you're on your own. You learned. Just enough to not be dangerous. Yeah, and that's and yeah. and here you're all you're all on your own now. Well, and, and if you guys want to answer the question, I mean, I th- I look at myself when you're talking about student teaching, Pete. When I was a, the student teacher, I mean, how much, how long before you you get just enough to know to not be dangerous? All my students who I saw before, my first three years, I hope they never see me because <laughs> it's a I'm sorry. That's the first thing I'd say. You know, is I'm sorry because you weren't mentored. Yeah, you were. St- how much did it stunt your growth as a teacher? And for me, I think it was two to three years. Easy. Yeah, easy. I think we're going to skip the aggregate expenditure limit till next meeting. Is that okay? Yeah, because that I, one's going to take. That probably will be the entire the episode. episode. Yeah. Since we're talking about teachers, I think this kind of goes with it. My question to you guys is: okay, Let me let me see. I got a couple questions. Hmm. Well, let's do this one. I think it kind of goes with it. Um, would you? That's a shitty question. I'm not going to ask that. <laughs> it's a stupid question. He wrote him. I'm glad I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote it. Let's do the. What is your best classroom management tip? Hmm. Just one. <laughs> What's your. What would Shut be your the goal? fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> no. That one does work. Mine the was. The first time. And then it's, then it's. Mine was a wake up call. And it goes back to my mentor teacher, my dying Corcoran. Still can remember. Woman was probably late sixties at the time, five foot nothing, maybe ninety pounds, soaking wet. But I remember one of those things. I was making my rounds, and I she was an ELA teacher, and I went in her class, eighth graders, and I taught in the inner city, so we had some interesting kids. And she just waited till mm-hmm. they were quiet. She just silence. And I'll never forget how much that impacted me because as new teachers, you know, we're going back to how many times have we talk over them? All right, let's get going. Let's get going. And your re- and your throat's, you know, you're tired, you're sweaty, or whatever. At the end of the day, you're you know, you're dry, dehydrated. And that were that that was a real wake me up piece. And I use that I use that for the rest of my career. I just wait. And eventually, you hear the kids come on, be quiet, be quiet, and they police themselves. Mm-hmm. And I do I did a lot with questioning. You know, watching those kids squirm. 
when you ask them a tough yeah. question. I like, yeah, I like it, to ask the question and then I'll sit there and like yeah. you did, just dead quiet. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. and I always tell them, I look at my watch, I'm like, I get paid you either way or not. Either way. So. Right. And they, and but eventually once that culture set within your classroom, it takes care of itself. It was, it was, it's, that's the, that was, that was I, cause after that, cause I don't remember ever getting upset, yelling or anything else. I just mm-hmm. wait. And they knew that was the easy one. You still thinking, Marcus? I can go if you want. If you no, want to think of it. No, go ahead. Yeah, okay. you can. Mine was, my daughter hates this because I'm considered the person that started it at the high school, mm. even though I, I don't think I was, but I was one of the early pioneers of the cell phone holder yeah. that I bought myself on Amazon. And then I remember I sent it to our principal and said, these are pretty cheap and they've worked fantastic for me. So one is to get that out of their hands. I know a lot of teachers now use it a lot in their classroom, which is fine. Um, it worked great for me because it would be a lot of my students were AP students, but even with my non-AP students, it was a great motivator because I would say, hey, man, if we can get this stuff done and you can answer these, we can do these practice problems. If we can finish them, when we're done with them, we're done. And then when we're done, guys can go get your phones over there mm-hmm. and like that was those kids were like salivating to get those phones man so that worked uh, so i think anybody could use that so the the activity i do the first week of school every year it's called a social contract essentially what what i do is we talk as a class about if we're going to be productive in this room and here's how i kind of frame it you got to go through three years of social studies so if you don't learn anything this year that's going to impact you in the next couple of years, right? You're going to have a harder time. So what do we got to do as a, as a classroom community to actually be productive and, and have a good learning environment? And uh, so we put together a social contract. I mean, the students, right? I lead the conversation. They tell me, what do they expect of each other behavior-wise? What do they expect of me? And, uh, and then we all sign it and hang it up. And that becomes something I reference back to. And really, like I, we talk a lot about in my classroom, teamwork. Um, and being a part of a team, I try and phrase it, use a lot of sports analogies and things mm-hmm. like that. I'm always talking about the end goal, depending on your class, right? It's the AP test or it's the final exam or whatever it is. And I'm constantly hounding to them that if you're off task or you're screwing around, right, you're hindering the rest of your team. And so that's kind of a something I use. A big one that I'm working on, I've worked on a lot, really the last two years, is pacing. A lot of people either go too fast and you're losing kids or they go way too slow and now kids are getting bored and they get off task. So really trying to keep kids um, moving so they have a sense of urgency, but not too fast so that they're stressed out, right? That, that's a big one for me. All right, everybody. Next week, we're going to talk about aggregate expenditure limits. I think that'll probably take up our whole 20, 25 minutes if we're going <laughs> to so. be talking, which will be better because we'll actually know the results of the election so we can see where the legislature will go with that. Until next time, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Stay curious.